Hello and welcome to Adventures in Venueland, an EAMC podcast. This is your all-access pass to go backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live entertainment industry. I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to some of our favorite people as we dive deep into the world of live touring shows and the venues that host them. You know, as we are here in the new year, 2023, I know some people are looking at, you know, what the next step is or what's what's new in the new year. And so so Paul and I have been looking at some some new ideas for podcasts and, and our guests. And and, you know, today kind of new in two kinds of ways here in Columbus. You know, we've been tasked with, you know, we're doing so well on the arena side of things. I said, hey, can you do some stuff in theaters? And and so, you know, want to talk with somebody here on the theater side of things. And in fact, somebody on the booking side of the theaters kind of thing. And so we have a great guest. We had a chance to uh, uh, meet uh, when we were up in the Twin Cities. Please welcome Rick Hansen, the director of booking with the Historic Theater Group. Rick, how you doing? Great, how about you? Good, you are a uh, Minnesota proud. I see wearing your uh, MN uh, hat there today. Are you, uh, you a Minnesota native? I am, born and raised and yeah, moved to Colorado for a bit, but came back to to do to do all this stuff. Well, I can't wait to hear all your your adventures here today, and and appreciate you making the time for us. But but let's let's start with the big question: What is the historic theater group? So this is kind of complicated, but um, it's it's a good story. Um, so the historic theater group is a management company. Then we take care of all the booking, all the front of house concessions ticketing for the Orpheum State and Pantages Theaters in Minneapolis. They're all on the same street within a block and a half of each other. And yeah, we're just a small little group that churns out a bunch of shows each year. <laughs> and your all's focus is mostly on the concert side, right? Not so much like the tour in Broadway. So I know uh, theaters really dabble in both. Yeah. Yep. So my boss um, is the the president of the historic theater group and he books all the Broadway for the Minneapolis market. Not only that, he does Grand Rapids, Eau Claire, Appleton, Madison, Milwaukee, and, and here, and I might, I might be missing one, but he, he books all that. And then it, basically it's my job to fill in all the dates with concerts, comedy, and some corporate, like big corporate events that need a big theater and yeah, we, we fill it out pretty well and it's, it's worked out great. It's just always having to work around the Broadway calendar, which is gets tricky sometimes. <laughs> Talk to me about, you know, the three theaters kind of walk us through for folks who, who have never uh, had the pleasure. Tell us about the state, the Orpheum and the Pantages. Yeah, they're awesome. They're all historic theaters over a hundred years old. Um, the Orpheum's our biggest and that's our Broadway house. And so that's at around 26, 2600 uh, is the cap for that room. Um, the state is 2150. And then the Pantages is our smallest one um, at 1000. But yeah, so all of our Broadway shows, uh, well, 99% of them go through the Orpheum and um, they do everything there. And I put a bunch of shows in there too. But most of my shows tend to be around the state and Pantages. The state's more of our rock house that can take like a beating with a bunch of sound and everything. <laughs> <laughs> And then the Pantages is tough because it's a thousand and um, we're all union rooms. So labor can get really expensive for small shows. 
So that's kind of been, that was my project almost coming into it being like, I want to get the, the, the Pantages or the pan as we call it. I just want to get it going. I want to get that one just booked, but they're all gorgeous. They're all redone on the inside. They all got redone in the late nineties to early two thousands. And they're, they're beautiful. They're really well upkept and we, we do a good job on making sure that they, they're still standing strong and operating like as much as we can with modern day venues. <laughs> You're closing in on, you know, really a, a decade with the uh, with the theaters. And and tell me about, you know, kind of your role with with booking in and kind of how that came about. Yeah. So, um, I mean, before I was at the theaters, I was with the Minnesota Orchestra doing their non-classical shows. And then this job opened up. And these are three theaters that I grew up going to. Um, and I was lucky enough to have some good references that told my now bosses to give a younger person a chance at booking um, because they they wanted someone with a not more experience, just a little bit older that has done theaters before because I came from talent buying at a music festival and at Orchestra Hall. So it was basically all nonprofit. This is the for-profit side, which I have a ball being on the for-profit side. (laughs) And um, (laughs) they took a chance on me. And um, the funniest thing that I can say, and it, it just rings true, is that my my not letter of reference, but um, the person that went in and vouched for me, his name's Rand Levy. And he is the person that started WeFest up North Minnesota. It's the largest country music festival in the nation for like 20, 30 years. And he's a buddy of mine. And uh, he went into my boss's office and said, you should hire Rick. And if, if, he sucks in a year, just fire him. (laughs) 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 Easy as that. Yeah, exactly. And so they're like, all right, if Rand believes in him, yeah, we got it. Like, I think it's the right choice. And so, yeah, so now I've been there 10 years and it's great. And I mean, all of my background comes into play with this job with talent buying before and knowing all the other promoters that I have to co-promote with that that I did before, all the other um, agents and managers that I've dealt with, they all come in. And so they had a familiar name at three theaters that, that they could see my face and know that I'm not going to totally screw up their shows. (laughs) I think a lot of people might not realize outside of Minnesota, how big of a theater venue market the twin cities are. And I know when we were up there, just there for a conference, it's like, you look at, usually this is something I'll do is I'm kind of like, right. What other bands are in town? Is there any cool venues I want to check out while I'm up here? And there's so many places. I mean, obviously there's, the arenas that are up there, there's the stadiums, you have First Ave, you have like these kind of legendary venues and then the three you mentioned that you work with. But what what is it like working in that type of market? Does it present challenges? I'm sure because there's probably some healthy competition, but then also I think a lot of markets strive to that have that kind of like live event energy, right? Like you almost want all your clubs and your venues and your stadiums to all do good because it's just sort of that rising tide that raises all the ships. So, you know, is it a blessing and a curse at times? Absolutely. It is both of those things. I I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, Minneapolis has um, more theater seats per capita than any other city in the United States besides New York city. Um, and and that's per capita. So, I mean, we love the arts up here. And so there's tons of venues and yeah, it it does pose a lot of challenges. Uh, I'm lots of time. I mean, I work with all the different promoters in town, so we do a bunch of in-house shows, but then we also, like you said, first Avenue, 
You got Outback, you got Live Nation, you got AEG. We have a bunch of independents up here, Sue McLean and Associates, all these talent buyers going to different venues and also wanting to use your venue. So, I mean, there's a lot of challenges and that's pretty much like a massive, massive part of my job is to maintain these relationships with all these people to make sure we can all like play nice in the sandbox. Obviously, there's times where there's tons of people putting in offers on the same bands and I'm going to get the show either way. And so that can pose an issue because they'll come ask me for special deals to try to get the upper hand on getting yeah. the show in there over other people. Sure. Um, and a lot of that just goes back to relationships. You know what I mean? Like I, I sit there and like every month I'm going out to eat or grabbing drinks with all these promoters and, and everyone to make sure that like they know, like I'm here and I'm, I'm going to work with you and like, let's try to get more shows. Let's try to get interesting shows in there. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's minor because that's what I, that's what I like doing. And that's what I am good at is maintaining these friendships and relationships and putting together these puzzle pieces. But yeah, there's some times where people get mad or like annoyed, but it's just kind of like, it's just a show. Like you're, you're going to get another one. Like that, you know what I mean? It's like not everything banks on this one show. But yeah, it's it's gotten it's the one thing that has started to get a little bit more tough is with me booking the Pantages, the small one. There's a couple more thousand cap rooms, and my friends at First Avenue just bought the Fitzgerald over in St. Paul. So there's like a good amount of not a good amount. There's there's a few shows like every month that could be a mine that go to theirs, but they have the history with the with the agent and they like they used to bring those shows to the Pantages, but obviously they want to bring it to the theater that they now own. So um sure. I mean those like and the first half guys are literally my best friends in the industry. So like we just chat about it and it's just kind of like like how to do with the fits. It's like, well yeah, like maybe next time we can bring it to the back to the pan because sometimes the St. Paul crowd it, it it's weird. It's sometimes the St. Paul crowd is a little different than the Minneapolis crowd. So there's little things like that, but uh, it, it, it always works out, you know? Um, but when people are trying to open new venues and new clubs, it can kind of, that's what creates the biggest riff, <laughs> I would say. Um, you guys uh, jump out in the streets and start snapping your hands like West Side right? Story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, the, yeah, there's some big ones that have tried to come in. I mean, AEG tried to come in here and open clubs and stuff like that. But I mean, First Ave kind of runs it, you know what I mean? Like, and yeah. so Live Nation opened the Fillmore here, which has been great for them. Um, and it's been a it's been a really good. Um, it, it's it's nice to have another club in town, but I mean, we're kind of we're not oversaturated, but I think we're kind of at our limit right now. Unless more and more people start moving to Minneapolis, then it's kind of like, I think we're good on venues for now. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, you, when you've got when you've got three venues, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and I know you're not you're not coming from the marketing side, but part of when you're doing booking is being able to sell what you can do. Are you able to, you know, kind of cross promote? Does does the public see your theaters as a single you know entity or or do they I mean, you know, the general person doesn't care who owns the building. Right. But is there kind of is that is there kind of an umbrella that kind of carries the whole thing? Yep. And so. um our marketing, we have a sister company called the Hennepin Theater Trust. They're the nonprofit and they technically own the theaters and we are the ones that just make it all happen. And so when people think of our theaters, they think of the Hennepin Theater Trust. That's right where their mind goes. So any of our three theaters, they're like, oh, it's the trust. Like, So yes, it is one entity basically that they think of and they do all the marketing. Um, they wanted the marketing for any shows that I bring into. So it's just kind of like, yep, it, they, they think of any show, even if it's like, a live nation or first app show on the marquee it'll say first app presents on the website it'll say first app presents but 
I mean, you have to go to the Trust website and it'll just like everyone thinks of any shows that come through as the Hennepin Theater Trust. So it's all one entity. That's interesting. I think I'm trying to think of how to ask this, but you obviously know how to book your three different rooms, but are you kind of playing not them against each other, but as acts grow, are you kind of like, I don't know, like, do you have a primary venue and then you're kind of backfilling into other venues if one is full like does it just kind of give you a whole lot of uh flexibility to where you're able to be okay this artist is going to be a great fit here this one might be a great fit here oh this one's double booked here i'm going to move them there it just kind of lets you move all those chess pieces around yeah and we've done that before um and especially like un- unfortunately there's a lot of promoters that come in even with my warnings even with everything they get a date, they want the Orpheum, they want those extra 500 seats, but they can only sell about 1500. So it's like, you could have paid less and it would have looked better in the state. Like people just always see like the gold in their eyes when they, when like a new promoter gets a, gets an act that they think that is just going to crush it. Um, But yeah, there's been times where uh, we've had acts that instead of doing, I mean, this is a nightmare for my box office and it's a big plus to how awesome my box office is. And we don't do it anymore, but there were many times where like someone would sell out like two Pantages shows and then they're like, well, we want, why don't we just do one big state show? It's like, oh no, like, cause you can make a lot of people unhappy <laughs> that like had those really close seats, you know what I mean? And so yep. yeah. it's, it, there's, there's lots of times like that or vice versa. If they only sold like 800 seats in the state, they're like, let's just move it down to the Pantages. It'll look great. The artists will feel better. And so we've, we've had to do that a couple of times. And that once again, very special occasions for very friendly promoters that want to make sure that like <laughs> that, that do lots of shows with us. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. yeah, it does. It does give tons of flexibility, um, which is great. I mean, I, I don't know if my bosses will want me to, to do this, but some of the renovations that were done in the 90s, that wasn't by our company. Um, they didn't put up some of the plaster in the state really well. And so we had a sold out Jackson Brown show and the night before we kind of had like a hip hop show at the state and some of the plaster fell. Um, and this was <laughs> after was everyone was gone. So like, it was just like loose oh and then like, gosh. yeah. And it, it wasn't like big or crazy, but it's like, we can't do this Jackson Brown show tomorrow. You know what I mean? And so that night I had to call the promoter and be like, we're moving into the Orpheum. Like my box office will have five people on site saying, all right, these were your seats. These are the comparable ones in the Orpheum. Like they were, they're personally printing them out. And it was just like, <laughs> mayhem but like with stuff like that we could have lost the show you know what i mean yeah. and and we didn't have yeah. to and and to be totally honest we sold an extra 200 tickets <laughs> yeah <laughs> i love you're mentioning these names like orpheum fillmore you know we've had someone on from the fox in atlanta before yep. too and i think it's really fascinating from kind of a venue nerd side that there is these these names that are present in a lot of different cities and i don't know how much you've kind of dug into the history of those or what you know about kind of why there are you know a Pantages in LA and a Pantages in you know Minneapolis and why there's Orpheums all over and Fox theaters but I think that's a really interesting thing how a lot of if I'm not mistaken a lot of them were movie houses at one point and some of them were not and they're owned by these big you know family names that have all been split out since but like what what can you tell us about kind of the history of all these names that you know people might recognize in their own market the only thing that I really know, it's like, um, cause we have a bunch of history stuff up in the Pantages and like there's history on the Orpheum online, but it's all about who like built them. 
And so there's like, there's these people that went around like building Orpheums in all these cities and building Pantages in all these cities. And it was, yeah, it was like these arts people that wanted to build big like vaudeville and like kind of playhouses, you know what I mean? And that's yeah. the extent that I know, but I just know that it's the builders of it. But yeah, I mean, with that, there's been some really hilarious mistakes. Like all of a sudden they're just like, like, who did I get? Um, yeah, I was like, we want to put um, Mariah Carey at the Pantages. So I was like, that's probably not the right fit. Like, <laughs> the thousand cap room. <laughs> which Pantages? Exactly. And then I'm like, which Pantages? Like, oh, I'm looking at LA. I was like, yep, you got the one in Minneapolis. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's when you just got to take a, take advantage of that. Like, yeah, yeah, right? Like, yeah, no, bring her up. I, I got it. Like, I cleared the date. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we always talk about, you know, all the, you know, keeping new acts and what, what size room they should play and making that recommendation. What tools do you use to stay on top of understanding who new acts are? Because even on the arena side, occasionally a show gets booked and you say, I have no idea who this One Direction band is, but everybody's so excited about them, right? I remember actually having that conversation, you know, uh, years ago when they booked their first uh, arena tour. It's just that thing of obviously, you know, when you're looking at the theater level, it's got to be even harder to stay on top of all these emerging acts. And, and so, so what do you do? Um, well, it's, it's kind of like threefold. It's kind of weird. Um, I mean, I'll always listen like every week I go on and listen to all the new acts, all the new albums coming up on Spotify. It takes up a good day and a half while I'm listening and working. Um, and so that's one of them and just see what catches my ear, but that's not the end all be all. Cause I mean, what catches my ear, I mean, it's the number one thing in booking, never book your favorite bands because they're not going to sell as well. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, and so uh, to be totally honest, uh, I look to first Ave a lot because they bring bands up from uh, what they do. They have the seventh street entry, which is 200 person venue. And then uh, they'll try to open them, have them open up at the main room in First Ave. And then they'll try to headline the main room and then they'll move them up to different places. And so I kind of watch what they're doing and see who they have coming up and start. And the other thing with that, though, is that since mine are seated theaters, you have to see which bands would play well with those fans that want to sit down. You know what I mean? Because uh, like... We've had Jeff Tweedy do an acoustic show at the Pantages, but when Wilco comes, they'll play First Ave's Palace because they have a GA floor and seated uh, loge. And so they they want that vibe, you know what I mean? But it's just kind of like you have to look and see who is, first of all, coming up, like you said, and find out these new artists, but then look at their fan base and say, all right, who's actually going to be seated and sitting down and enjoy the show in that perspective, you know? And then I get on a call with a lot of theaters every week, independent theaters every week. And we talk about who's coming up, like who are we excited about, um, who's selling well, like if, if they have the first leg of the tour and we're trying to put in offers for the second leg, it's just like, all right, how much did you pay for them? What are ticket sales like? And it's kind of like, it's just nonstop communication with other theaters that in different markets too. Um, so those three things are the main ways of doing it. It's It's listening looking at first avenue and talking with the other theaters basically <laughs> so when you're looking ahead you know at all these oh you know and you're talking to all these other theaters and making these connections you know as we look ahead to the rest of 2023 what what do you see as uh what, what trends do you see uh what's what's emerging what's hot uh in the in the theater industry and, and live music um comedy is just blown up for us nonstop. um like the amount of comedy out there and the amount of tickets that it's selling is beyond me. Like 
I would say probably over 50% of my business now, over 50% is comedy, comedians coming in. And that ranges from small ones at the Pantages that are just up and coming. And then th those are the fun ones because like we have like Shane Gillis coming and it's like, you had to add another show. And it's like, they might add a third. We have Taylor Tomlinson started off with just two shows at the Orpheum coming up in January. And it's up to four. It's we're almost so like, we're almost 10,000 tickets sold for Taylor Tomlinson. Like it's, it's just ridiculous. And it, it's such a moneymaker too, because you don't have to bring in backline. You don't have to bring in video. It's literally like a mic and a stand. And it's like, all right, maybe a stool and a glass of wine. Exactly. And so it's just like, <laughs> let's go. And so it, those have been huge and especially for the theaters it's comedy for the theaters big time i mean i can't speak for the clubs i talk to them all the time and there's a bunch of bands coming up that they're excited for in the clubs but wouldn't fit in my rooms uh just personality wise or fan wise but yes comedy is huge 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 for us um there's more and more kids shows going out um which those aren't my favorite to put on and they kind of drive our staff and box office with all the different ticket pricing and promotions for it. And the moms. Yep. Say it. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And then the merch cuts, like it's always, it's always a, a battle to do all that, but those, I mean, those are, there's a lot more coming out and there's a lot more decent ones coming out. Like even when I started 10 years ago, some of the product was just shit. Like it was just bad. Like, just people right. in costumes like eh, waving and, and now people they have like see through it a bit. Exactly. And now they have like plot lines and like, and it's based off TV shows that they love. Like the bluey tour is just blowing up right now. And like right. the whole blippy thing was massive, but it's just like, but then there's some that just don't cross over. You know what I mean? That just don't sell. So that's what we see with the children's one is they either blow out of the water or they just sink. Like there's no middle ground with them. It's just one or the other. What a fun coin flip. I'm sure you're like, right? which one and, is this going to be? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just hope. Um, but yeah, so comedy is the biggest thing, truthfully. Like we still get all the concerts, but I mean, with concerts, to play our theaters, you kind of have to be somewhat like, you have to be in in the scene for a while to sell a thousand tickets at a theater or 2000 or 2600. So you kind of see those coming from a ways out. And so with concerts, it's more of seeing who's going to go on tour and try to steer them away from going to the casinos. Cause that's one massive thing. It casinos used to be like when you were on your way out from like performing, like when you were on your way down from your career, it's just like, all right, they'll play the casinos. You know what I mean? But now right. they're throwing these just huge money at them and they're getting contemporary acts that compete with all the stuff that we want at the theaters and the theaters are a better place to see those shows. But I mean, if you're paying the artist literally two times as much that they're asking for, the casinos are going to get the shows like 90% of the time, unless their right. manager's like, no, like the theater's the right play, you know? Right. Yeah. So, um, so with music, it's just kind of watching and seeing who's on tour, basically, or saying to the agent, you know, it would be cool is to get this person do an underplay at the theaters or like do a do a four night stand at the theaters instead of like the Excel, you know, and and we did that a few years ago. It was awesome. We had Neil Young play each one of our theaters three separate nights. So we played the Orpheum so cool. one night, the state one night and the Pantages one night. It was awesome. But yeah, so for long story short, comedy. <laughs> That's that's the that's the big thing in comedy, comedy, comedy. <laughs> Have you had some cool? I mean, you mentioned the Neil Young one, which sounds awesome, and and I know that 
that is, I feel like I'm seeing that more and more, including Columbus Dave with like 21 pilots. And I know Jack Harlow did something in Louisville similar where they're kind of like doing a tour to venues of the local market, which is really a cool way to not only support multiple venues, but also, you know, you have these tiny intimate shows and then you're literally playing like a stadium show the next week or something, which is wild. But do you have some cool moments where you've seen these bands? Maybe they're even local bands that have like, you've literally seen them grow from like that 200 seat room at first Ave to playing through your venues to then seeing them open for a show at, you know, target center. And then all of a sudden they're at, you know, the stadium or something like, have you seen that kind of organic growth within the market? Oh yeah. The biggest one that I remember is Lord Huron. Um, I saw them at the entry with their first album. I think it was 12 years ago and it was a full house at seventh street entry. And then, they went and played the main room and then they went and played the palace. And I want to say they played my room. I could be mistaken, but um, either way, now they're selling out the um, Surly Festival field in the summer for 6,000 people. Like it's, it's really fun or like hippocampus local band. I mean, first Avenue is all over them, but they, they've grown from small club and now they're headlining festivals and stuff like that, which is great. I mean, they're local kids and we started hearing about them when they were in high school, like, they were at a music school Jeez. and people were like, have you heard of these kids? Like these kids are amazing. And <laughs> they, and all of a sudden it's just like, all right. And there they go. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, and, and so they're just huge. So I see it, I see them grow. And then I'm just lucky enough with my theaters to where they can pop in. But um, we, we have done many shows where it's, they've gone from the Pantages to the state and then after the state, they're kind of at like a 6,000 person like arena. So they'd go over to the armory or something like that. Right. Um, so we were just lucky enough to have them pop in when they're coming up. But yes, I've seen tons of acts come through from literally 200 people to now. Well, I mean, I saw the Lumineers there. Like I saw, like, who else did I see at the entry? I mean, I've seen, yeah, the Hold Steady, like all these bands, like they, they, they're coming up and it's it's fun because we we have the amount of venues and the versatility in different kinds of venues in Minneapolis to make sure that acts want to come here and that they can grow into different spaces. And it's really fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, you know, you were uh, uh, there is, you know, in, in the booking role through some some challenging times. Tell us about booking during a pandemic. Well, I was prepared for it. I'll tell you why. Oh, come on. Nobody oh. was prepared for it. <laughs> no, 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 I wasn't prepared for the pandemic, but I was prepared. I was prepared in a way that I knew how to cancel and reschedule shows constantly. When I, <laughs> when, when, when I worked, when I worked at the Minnesota Orchestra, management locked out the musicians for a year and a half. And so all of the shows that I had wow. booked, I had to keep rebooking them to make sure that we were kosher with the contract with the musician saying we're still trying to do business we're still doing our part to book these shows if you reach the deal with management you know what i mean yeah, and so right. that didn't get reached for a year and a half so i had to cancel and reschedule and cancel and reschedule and cancel and reschedule for a year and a half so i was i i was well equipped that's what i should say i wasn't <laughs> expecting it but i was well equipped to to handle this more than um, most of us yes but uh it was not fun i mean i went to a show i went to bob weir at the Fillmore the night before everything shut down and I had Joe Bonamassa loading into the Orpheum the next day they were fully loaded into the venue the first day like that everything shut down but due to insurance policies and contract stuff 
we were having to probably go ahead and do the show unless the mayor of Minneapolis said all shows are shut down. And so we were loading in and uh, the historic theater, me and then Bonamassa's management were like waiting and waiting to like make this happen so that we were all covered so that not one of us were like getting screwed over. Yep, sure. And sure. finally at like, like 3 PM that day, like Tim Walls was just like, yep, we're shutting everything down. We're like, Oh, thank God. Like, <laughs> like, and that was the only time where I was like, thank God it's shutting yeah, down. Right, yeah. you know what I mean? And then throughout the rest of it, it was, it was just all avails. It was just, all right, this could be over in two months. What, what avails do you have? Like, it was just nonstop puzzle piecing for two years. Like it was sure. quite honestly, just piecing together. I mean, and yeah, we had to work with the agents and promoters too, obviously with it, but it's just like, all right, when, are, when could they reroute? Where are they going to come now? Like what, how is this going to work? And then of course, two months later, thrown out the door because it's still closed down and then do it all over again. So we did that for probably about, it would always be about three to four months out. So we did that like four or five times rescheduling every single show. <laughs> we hear from people kind of outside of booking on different silver linings, or maybe it's things that like skills they sort of picked up by necessity. And so is there something from that that you feel like, you know, it was probably a pain in the ass, but then at the end of the day, you're probably like more, equipped now even more so than you were back when you were doing the the symphony or the, uh but you know like do you feel like you gleaned something from those two years that maybe has helped you going forward since then um i think the communication with our staff we're like we are such a small staff that churns out over 400 shows a year at our three venues that we always have to be in contact with each other but to check in with them because we just kind of put our heads down and do our jobs. We all like our staff, like I, I can't speak highly enough about our staff and our, and, and the people that work with us, but to check in on them just to see how they're doing, because it's just kind of like, you don't always like, I just kind of confirm shows and then box office takes care of it. Production takes, you know what I mean? Like we all have our jobs. We sure. kind of stick to it. But I think communicating in between those three was something that came about because it was just like, well, Rick, if we have this show this night, and we're trying to build this show the next night in the box office. Like we could run into this problem where we could do this. And then the production staff would be like, yep. And like, if we go too late on this one, like it's all stuff that you already knew, but you're constantly talking about it because you have to be face to face because no one knows when the show's going to happen. So I think the sure. inner dialogue with our team became a lot stronger and it's something we were already good at, but it just got better. And then I think another thing that I learned and, and, took away from it is that some agents do have souls and that they're kind people. Um, and some, I'm, I'm friends some. with a lot of agents, but there's a lot that are just that. Uh, yeah. And so learning that, yeah, like they were struggling too and like kind of felt bad for them. So I had some empathy for them. So <laughs> kind of just, it was just, yeah, it was more of that stuff. Cause with, with the rescheduling and everything like that, like I said, I, I did that for a while. So it was kind of like, Oh boy, like deja vu. Here we go. And so, um, but yeah, the communication just got stronger. That's what I would say. I didn't really like, there was no new skill, but things got stronger and much more like cohesive as a unit is what I would say came from it. You know, we, you, you kind of touched on a little bit of your, your past, but let's talk to you. You mentioned, you know, even going to these theaters as a kid, were you, were you a theater kid growing up? I was not. I was all music. It was only concerts growing up. That's all I did. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I grew up in like little suburb uh, outside of Minneapolis and uh, 
would always go down to these shows. And then I went to school uh, in Boulder for their business. How'd you school. end up in Denver or Boulder? I always wanted to go to Colorado, right? I always wanted to go to Colorado. I was I was a competitive snowboarder as a kid, and I loved going out there and and just riding. So um, I wanted to go out to Colorado. It's just always some place that I wanted to be for school. And so I went to Boulder my freshman year for business school, and then I decided that yeah, sure, business is great, and I love business. I'm good with numbers, but I want to do music business. And so I started looking into music business schools, and. I mean, top ones are Berkeley, NYU, Miami. Um, I think Syracuse has a great program. And I applied to NYU and uh, Berkeley, um, got past the first round. And then I, my buddy was like, dude, do you understand that there's a four-year music business school in Denver at the University of Colorado at Denver? And I was like, no, I did not. And so I'm like, I'm staying in Colorado. And so um, I transferred down to CU Denver and did their music business program, which was the best thing in the world because I loved everything that I was learning and doing and they helped set up with like great internships and experiences. We got to promote our own shows. We got to record all of our student albums and then release them to try to like figure out how to like release it to the public, stuff like that. That's so cool. Uh, and then they also like, and so on top of all of the normal science language, like all those classes, like the, the normal credits that you need, um, we also had to do like, yeah, music business, um, audio production. They made us do like a full like 360, like to learn how to do everything. So we had to take like audio classes where like you're on like a big board mixing sound. And then we also had to do, well, we had to do music theory. I had to do three semesters of music theory and I had to play two instruments. And like, so it was just like, all right, let's do this. And so you get to, you get this full, awesome education on the beginning to the end of like, where you write songs, you learn music to how it's produced, to how how do you make money off it? How do you create a business out of it? Which was awesome. Um, through that, I had some internships. Um, I'm a mandolin player and kind of a jam band fan at heart. I love every kind of music, but I mean, Fish and the Dead are kind of my backbone of music. And um, I'm a mandolin player. And so I got to do my first internship with Partners in Music, which is Yonder Mountain String Bands. It was Yonder Mountain String Bands Management Company. So I got in there with them um, after college just to make sure. I always knew I wanted to do live music, but just to be sure, I did an internship in Nashville with a small little record label called Dual Tone Records, which is, I mean, they're the coolest record label out there. I mean, they now now they have the Lumineers, um, they had Brett Denon, they had Delta Spirit, like all the like killer bands. And so yeah. I went down there, but I was just like, nope, like I love it, but I want to do live music. And then I got um I applied for a job at the Breckenridge Music Festival in Colorado and flew out there. And I was the associate director of marketing for the Breckenridge Music Festival, which is a six week music festival of orchestra concerts and then about 10 to 12 non-classical concerts. And so I did that for a while. And then my boss retired, their boss retired. And all of a sudden at the age of 23, I was the talent buyer for a music festival. <laughs> exactly what you were doing, a hundred percent, right? Right, exactly. So, like, I mean, that's what the school prepared me for, like, just to know like the terms and like how to put together offers and stuff like that. But now it was the real world; it's not play money. You know what I mean? And so, <laughs> yeah, that, that was that was that was a trip, and that's where, yeah, I, I mean, 
that's where I learned nearly everything because I was on my own. There was a staff of three people and I was the runner. I was getting catering. I was the transportation. I picked up Leo Kotke at the airport and drove him up to Brackenridge and drove him back. Like um, you learn the most, you learn so much in those situations uh, like that, where you, you don't have all the staff. And so you actually get your hands a little dirtier in, in other, in other areas. Exactly. And so that's, it was, it was the best learning experience for me, even though it was, super tough grind it was it was awesome like i i yeah i was the person putting in the offers i was the person making sure that all the like requirements of the contracts were met and it was it was tough but i learned so much and i absolutely loved it it's just it was it was hard living in a mountain town people find that very hard to believe but it was hard living in a mountain town that small where everyone's vacationing all the time and it's like everyone's partying vacationing and you're just kind of like i was even with my close friends that lived out there, I <laughs> I was one of like, out of my group of like 30 people that I hang out with, I was one of two people that had a nine to five because then everyone else was either working <laughs> like the ski lifts or they were working in the service industry because like those are the jobs out there. And so yeah, sure. Um, it was just kind of, it was time for me to go. So moved back to Minnesota, kind of took a step down with the orchestra as in regards to position wise um, with the Minnesota orchestra. It was more of a coordinator position to start with. And, um, yeah, it just it 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 went from there, and then like I said, the lockout happened. So I was there for three years, and half of it was locked out. So I, I was rescheduling shows for half my tenure at the at the Minnesota Orchestra, and then this job came up, and it, like I said, dream job. These are the theaters that I grew up going to, and like I can't think of a better place to be. Like I, I absolutely love these theaters and this company. And Rick, doing this, you also uh, you know kind of. Became the founder CEO of RFH uh, Productions. Talk to us about that. Yeah. Um, so when I was at the orchestra and I was getting bored not putting on shows, I started my own company where I would just, I, I mean, I have a bunch of friends that are lawyers and that work for big companies and they want to do like events with national touring acts and stuff like that. So I just set up my own company so I could book bands. And I mean, I, I didn't have a non-compete clause so I could do whatever I wanted. And so, yeah, I'd book bands at the theaters and at, at clubs and stuff like that just on the side. And so I still have it going. So if like, I, I mean, I've done a couple still over the past three years. No, yeah, about five years where someone just calls me. There's like, dude, we want to put on this show. Like, can you help us out? And it's like, yeah, I'll just put on my RFH Productions hat and go, go, go there. But that's just kind of a fun side project. And it, um, it was lucrative and, but I mean, now with how much time all these shows take up, it's kind of just whenever someone asks, I'll, if I have time, I'll, I'll help them out. Did Was that fun kind of book? Did Because it sounds like you booked the theaters when you were with the orchestra. Mm-hmm. And so that was before you were working there. So was that a fun experience kind of like bringing shows to those venues before you? Yeah, went? it was just a, it was a couple of were smaller ones, but it's just like, I, I mean, I didn't even know that I was going to start working there. You know what I mean? So all of a sudden it's just like, yeah. oh my God, I, I've been here. Like, I know this. <laughs> yeah, it's just well, it's like theater. That's where I went when I was a kid. Exactly. And oh, there's some funny stories about that, too. Like some of the staff that like, I don't know how much I should say. Anyways, we were doing. <laughs> we'll leave that for another day. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's some of the staff that works at the theater still was working when I was in high school, put it that way, like the ushers. And so it's just like, nice. there's some familiar faces there. Still. 
Rick, you know, we talked to, you know, it's, it's you know, obviously uh, quite quite some adventures there. But but what do you like to do for fun? I obviously you, you, you do go to shows occasionally, but beyond the the music and, and theater scene, uh, uh, talk, to, talk to us a little about your life. Um, I got two kiddos, so they take up most of the time. And so me and my wife are constantly going to lots of hockey and lots of soccer um, and lots of baseball. Um, so we do that. I love the Twins, Minnesota Twins and the Minnesota Wild. I'm a big hockey and baseball fan. So I'll go check out those games. I, like I said, I play the mandolin. Actually, me and my buddy, um, uh, my buddy's band, uh, we just actually basically sold out the um, 7th Street entry at First Avenue last week. We had a show, which was awesome. Um, What's the name of the band? That's so cool. um, well, no, it's it's, it's his band. His, his name's Benny Everett, and he just released an album. And so we kind of worked on songs over COVID, like in his driveway, and then recorded it last year. And He's an incredible songwriter, and I just kind of helped out with harmonies and arrangements, and so um, it, it turned out really well. And so that was fun. Um, I love fly fishing, and I snowboard, and yeah, basically, and then most of my time is concerts. Though, like if I'm not putting on one, I'm at one. <laughs> Do you think you'll eventually get to book yourself? <laughs> I have before. <laughs> That's the dream. That's got to be a hell of a deal. Oh yeah, I, I give myself the best. Best guarantee, you know. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's fun. So yeah, we we we've, we've had a ball, and I, yeah, so I I play music too. So it's it's ninety percent music. The rest are sports. <laughs> oh, sounds like funny to keep you busy. Hey, uh, Rick, before we let you go and get get back to all that that fun stuff, want to hit you with our fast five. It's five quick questions. Just looking for your instant response. First okay. up, do you remember your very first concert? Yes, I do. It was my mom took me to the Beach Boys at. Um, at the state fair. And then the first one on my own was Dave Matthews when I was in fifth grade, followed the next month by Fish in fifth grade. How'd you get to go wow. see Dave Matthews on your own in fifth grade? Uh, my early, brother was, early gym. Oh, your brother. Brother. Okay. Yeah, my go. brother was there. So yeah, I saw I saw Fish and 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 Dave Matthews in 95. Pretty crazy to think about that. Do you have a favorite concert? Um, yes, I do. Um, it was Prince at the Dakota, which is a 200 person jazz club in Minneapolis. Um, he was trying out his new drummer um, and rhythm section and all of my theaters were booked at the time. This is when I was at the orchestra. All the theaters were booked at the time and he wanted to do a small venue. So he did the tryouts in front of a live audience for three nights at the Dakota, only 200 people. Oh, everyone everyone crazy. talked about it, how, well, he's just playing music. He's just jamming. It's not great. And so me and my buddy, I have a connection at the, I mean, Lowell, who owns the Dakota is just a good friend of mine. So he helped me buy tickets to the last show. And um, everyone's like, everyone's just sitting down. It's kind of boring. Like all of a sudden um, the starting notes of controversy come on. And he said something to the effect of, I dare y'all to sit your ass down. And like, <laughs> he stood up and like tables parted. And like for two hours, he just played hit after hit. And we were five feet from him. It was awesome. <laughs> oh, oh. What is, uh, what's your favorite mixed drink? Mixed drink? Yeah, because I understand you and Paul may have shared a drink uh, up in Minneapolis. All right. When I well, when I'm at the Capitol Grill, which is hooked on to the state, it's always a Stoli Doli, which is pineapple infused vodka. And then <laughs> if I'm just going out for cocktails, it's either it depends on the the time of day or the the time of year, but it's either a vodka soda or a Manhattan. There you go. What's uh, uh if if you got your mandolin out, and I, I was going to ask you to play one song. What's yep. the one song that you're going to like? Oh, check this one out. I got this one. I would play Girl from the North Country by Bob Dylan, but my favorite mandolin player, Sam Bush's version of it. There you go. All right. Last question. 
what's your what's your theme song? Uh, you get a own reality, the Rick show, where uh, cameras follow you around through all your theater booking adventures. What's the song that plays over the the opening credits? The opening credits? Oh my god, that's a good question. That's tough. Mm, damn, that's tough. <laughs> It would have to be a fish song. And with that one, it would probably have to be a song called Simple by Fish. That's what it would be. It's catchy. It's fun. It's goofy. But it it gets the job done. Kind of like what I do. So. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Rick, if people want to find you or, or you know, the, uh, the theater group online, uh, throw out uh, any plugs here. Yeah. So the Hennepin Theater Trust, like I said, that'll be the website to go to. But for booking, um, my email address is stupidly long. But... Uh, it's rick.hansen at broadwayacrossamerica.com. Um, it's very long, but uh, but yeah, so those two things. And then, yeah, anyone who wants to come check out the theaters, come check them out. Email me. Very cool. Well, Rick, hey, I really appreciated hearing your story today. And uh, uh, thank you for the time. Best of luck here in 23. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. You too. And a big thanks to everybody for listening to this episode of Adventures in Venueland. Remember, you can find more episodes or even better subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Uh, we do love your five-star reviews. It helps others find us. Until the next adventure, I'm Dave Ruttleberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. Thanks for listening, everyone. Save me one of those stoli dolies. <laughs> <laughs>